0: Welcome back to Proteum Pirate Radio, where we pirates help you navigate the uncharted waters of end-stage capitalism. I'm your host and democratically elected, instantly recallable captain, Mel B. I'm joined here today by Taylor from Distribute Aid. Hi, how you doing?
1: Hey, doing great. Just uh, trying to wrap up the year here. Um, Brexit is making that a little bit more challenging than we thought, but almost done and uh the folks uh living rough in northern france are gonna have a great uh christmas surprise when all that aid gets in that's fantastic
0: awesome so i we've been for the listeners who don't know we've been comrades and friends for quite some time a couple of years now we know each other through twitter once again twitter has built relationships in my life um This episode is going to be probably coming out right around the time where I hit my two-year mark as a podcaster, and I think this is a very good episode um, to have a conversation about mutual aid networks internationally and the way that we can sort of build that infrastructure in the United States. So to start off, Taylor, uh, if you just want to tell our listeners a little bit about who you are um and what distribute aid is um, i think that's probably a good place to start
1: totally um so i am one of those like um americans who left uh after trump got elected um oh gosh who am i i don't know
0: <laughs> <laughs> you are co-founder of Right, there aid? We go.
1: right. Cool. <laughs> I'm Taylor. I'm the co-founder of Distribute Aid and um, after an incredible uh, and incredibly challenging year, we're now the largest European grassroots aid organization that focuses on logistics. So that's a lot of uh, sweat and a lot of tears. Not too much blood, um, but it feels really good to, to be in this position to help so many people. Um, hailing from the States, we're a, a Swedish organization. My co-founder is a Swede and uh, absolutely love what I get to do every day. There's so many interesting challenges and I'm glad that like all of it leads to building a better world that like I want to live in um, and hopefully other people like we can get there together and enjoy that. So that's the goal.
0: Very cool. Okay. So tell me a little bit about distribute aid. Um, Apparently I just haven't had enough coffee this morning. Um, so give us a little bit of a sort of rundown of what distribute aid is and how it plays into the larger sort of, uh, uh, aid networks that are uh, established in Europe.
1: Totally. Um, and so, maybe some context before I dive into our role um, where the European refugee aid movement um, got started about five years ago in 2015 when an unprecedented number of asylum seekers were fleeing the Syrian civil war and other conflicts in the Middle East. um, And of course, various places in Africa um, to Europe. So there's always been um, asylum seekers that come to Europe to um, apply for refugee status, and this represented a at least a tenfold increase in a very short amount of time. Um, the government response, of course, was tragic. The um, people's response has been beautifully inspiring. So that kind of sets the stage. There's lots of groups at home that are collecting donations and raising money, and then there's lots of groups in the field um, that And some levels work directly with the government to try to, you know, get into the camps and facilitate a better life um, and kind of take that approach. At other levels are very uh, anti-capitalist, anti-government, taking over squats and, you know, really like going to the borders and supporting people directly. So it's a very broad and inclusive movement, um, and it's hard to put it in a box right it's not anti-capitalist but it's not capitalist it's not um you know kind of what we would imagine as humanitarian but it's not just like purely altruistic but it's not purely self-serving right and it really depends on how you slice it and which groups you're talking about um but that's the key thing was there's already this network of like really great humans doing lots of really good work, despite the difficulties that the governments in Europe impose. Um, And so we were able to come in and Sara and I got our start just folding clothes at one of these collection points, you know, literally going through trash bags of people's junk and pulling out thongs or really nice, you know, $200 boots, which absolutely are not appropriate for a camp environment. And then taking the good stuff like t-shirts or, you know, small jeans or tents or sleeping bags, making sure that the zippers worked, there weren't holes or stains, um, and packaging them up and sending them off to people on the front lines to distribute. So looking at that process, um, we noticed that it was good, but it was actually that connecting bit there. That was some of the most challenging work, like who needs these particular items, right? Everyone needs stuff, but who needs this stuff? How do we get it there? How do we actually, you know, and it's a bunch of kids that are just calling up trucking companies and and trying to figure it out as they go. And that's the, uh problem that we identified as um, where we could make the largest contribution, and we validated that. I think that's when we first started talking. We were on a tour um, where we met over 25 aid groups in a three-month period, just doing the Eurorail thing around Europe to make sure that our ideas of bringing logistics expertise and technology support to the process were needed. And, oh, my gosh, everyone said yes. Like, we thought, okay, this could be kind of helpful. Like, no, it was like, make this happen yesterday. Um, So that would have been 2018. And it started 2019. Sara and I moved out to Serbia. We had a brand-new Swedish NGO. Um, We view that as not the end-all, be-all, but as, like, a tool or a tactic to facilitate the actual work um, that we do and just started organizing eight shipments. Um, I think that in the first year, we really, on the supply side, we're mostly working with groups in the UK, coming out of Scotland, and then shipping to Northern France in the Calais-Dunkirk area and all over Greece. And we kind of use that as an opportunity, helping existing groups make their shipments more efficient, um, really taking a back seat and just learning how things worked this year um, with the huge amount of challenges that grassroots organizers have faced all around the world, um, we've been able to really step our game up and uh, take a bit more of a, um, should I say, like an editorial role in the aid movement um, because we have such a large network now. So we can start matching people up. We never try to make decisions. Um, That's like just a terrible idea for a number of reasons. And we don't want to be in control we want to surface information and connect people and then let them say, like, yes, this is the right move for me. Um, so we're much more facilitators um, and uh, just try to make sure that, you know, the shipments are as efficient as possible, save folks money, save folks time, save folks hassle. And um, of course, that the aid is what's needed and is helpful on the ground.
0: Give me, okay. Okay. Typical sort of uh, project, right? Someone comes to you and says, uh, this particular refugee camp in Greece needs these items. What is the process from, I guess, start to finish from when you receive that request to when the items show up in, in Greece? What does that look like?
1: Totally. Um, there's a couple of types of shipments we do, but I'm going to keep this one simple as kind of an overview. It happens on two sides. So we get information on like what have people collected, what's available out there, and we get information on where the needs are. Um, and so we like to deal with pallets of aid, um, not small boxes or something. It's not super efficient. It's like, okay, can you get enough men's clothing to fill up a pallet. Most groups can figure that out. Um, And then we kind of combine those into a full truck. And that's the most efficient way we've identified, um, you know, to get aid out to the field, literally saving groups, thousands and thousands of euros on each shipment. Um, So we help the groups on the sending side, take their list of what's needed, match that, or I'm sorry, take their list of what they have and match that against the needs list we've received, um, which is already like a a pretty big improvement. Um, It's gotten to the point that the groups in the field get to pick and choose exactly what they want, um, which is pretty unheard of. So that really makes sure we're not sending items that are gonna sit around a warehouse, we're not sending junk that's gonna be thrown out and that the stuff that gets there is immediately useful and can be distributed as quickly as possible to fill the biggest needs. Um, so that's kind of the first part of the process is just matching people up. Um, once that happens, we book a truck. We work with a number of different freight forwarders and we'll call them up and be like, can we get a quote? It's got to go, you know, we got a bunch of hygiene stuff in London going to Athens, right? Um, that's the first leg of the journey. So these collection groups, uh, sometimes they pool their aid, sometimes um, they just, uh, you know, have a full truck ready to go by themselves, get it all together. They handle the loading and everything. Um, We do a number of different checks. Hey, no dangerous goods. Let's make sure the truck doesn't blow up. And yes, I know that you want to include that spray deodorant that can actually explode. And yes, I know that you would love to get hygiene, um, you know, like hand sanitizer into the field to deal with COVID, that can actually like spontaneously combust. So let's leave those off and send everything else that's needed truck goes to Athens and it unloads at a local shipping company that we use. And this is another cool thing that we do. So we have these kind of combined shipments up front. um, And then at the tail end, we split it up. And again, dealing with pallets, that way it's not a full truck going to a single camp because there's dozens of camps in Greece, right? We can't overlook, um, you know, one Uh, set of people just because there's um, a more prominent camp or a current disaster in another place. So we're able to split it up on the tail end and make sure that people are getting targeted aid that they need to kind of fill the gaps that they have in their supplies. Once it hits the receiving warehouses, that's then on the field groups to distribute it. And there's a variety of methods they use, um, such as free shops, which I love. It's like so great to see people given a normal experience and given some choice in environments where they usually have none. Um, But of course, in other areas like northern France, where there isn't that infrastructure or there is more repression from the state, um, you do have, you know, kind of van side distributions. You drive into the woods. Hey, everyone's got to line up. You know, we're going to hand out. We can give you your size or something, but you got to take what you get and we got to get out of here before the the cops show up. So
0: you're you're working pretty much. You've just slid into existing infrastructure. You're not necessarily building your own, but leveraging what's already been established. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, That's very cool. And I think that is so important. Is that we can't do everything ourselves. Um, we need those networks, right? We are the the group that can come in to an existing network um, and help them make that logistics side as efficient as possible. We'd love to grow to the point where we can start setting up some more of this infrastructure ourselves. And we're currently doing that more on the advising front, like telling people how to get their own local setup as efficient as possible. Um, but I would say right now, looking at um, what we can do beyond the refugee aid movement or as we get into new countries like Germany on the supply side was a really big win for us this year and connecting some new German groups to The existing, you know, field groups um, just added so much capacity, but you have to have the people that want to help. You have to, they have to solve their own local problems, like getting a warehouse and stuff like that. And then once that's set up, we can do our bit on top of it.
0: Right. Okay. So this whole process is, it's not, you're literally just working on making sure that something happens in terms of aid gets from point A to point B. You deal with that sort of middle space, but the, you're working in a network of what dozens of other aid groups who are also doing their own work right yeah. um, very very much a macro sort of mutual aid process across an entire continent that's fantastic that's really cool um yeah,
1: I, I love it and and like you said, you know I think that's one of the beautiful things of working in grassroots um we've Ships from and to over 55 different aid organizations and that's just the direct parties on the truck. I would guess there's another 50 there at least that end up receiving aid from our shipments or contributing to them that we don't directly interact with. And that is why this is such a, you know, it is one of the longest running, largest scale mutual aid networks in the world, right? And the resiliency and the adaptability that we see despite, you know, huge challenges, whether it's um, warehouse arsons from fascists or uh, repression and deportations from the states to actually criminalizing aid work um, or just the, you know, normal challenges of dealing with um, the, the horrible conditions uh, that asylum seekers find themselves in to a whole freaking pandemic, we're still up and running, right? This is not going away. If anything, people have doubled down and there's more support today than there was when I got started to, to deal with these challenges.
0: Do you think uh, that the grassroots nature of, of this organization and this network um is preferred i mean it seems like you you're by building this up in such a way that you kind of exist outside of government structures for example there's less red tape for you to cut through um and it feels like because of the nature of the the network itself that you are able to do this work a lot better more efficiently more often than say for example uh fema type international aid right That kind of stuff, right, where these logistics networks are in place, but you're waiting for a phone call from someone to say, okay, finally, you can send it, you know, and at that point, it's been six days and a city hasn't seen water, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So do you think like the grassroots nature of it is really kind of like the linchpin in in the success of this uh, project across the continent?
1: Um, absolutely. I think that, um, the grassroots side is a key role and the entire refugee and asylum system in Europe would have fallen apart without it. Um, you know, which is also a fair point to criticize how much are we enabling, um, these kind of horrific conditions and systems versus, um, you know, with our support for them. And that's something that, within the movement, we look very carefully at uh, organizations, you know, before they go in to support a camp or to support a region or like, are we just perpetrating harm? Are we just allowing the state to um, skirt their own responsibilities? Um, But the nice thing is that in addition to the mutual aid side, that also provides a natural point to put political pressure on politicians, right? Or to put pressure on corporations, like y'all need to be donating, you know, don't step in there and, and do whatever you're going to do, because it'll mess it up, give us the stuff, and we will take it from there. Um, and so I think that grassroots cannot do everything, right? Um, I don't think that anyone in grassroots wants to run a camp, we want to dismantle the camps, um, you know, and so there's kind of this balance of, yes, we have to work within government structures. Sometimes we are also able to step outside of that and support people directly, um, you know, solving housing through squats or other more radical means. But I would say that I am only interested in working with grassroots, you know, with some light collaboration with larger players, um, and i do not want to support these much less efficient much less caring uh forms of humanitarian aid whether that's like white saviorism going into another country like no give me the local people there that are solving their problems and i'll support them right or if it's the slow inefficient fema type responses We're already in there, man. I get the call the day afterwards. I go find the people like um, in the States. I'd love to start working with uh, mutual aid disaster response um, once we can kind of expand a little bit out there because they're the ones who respond to all the hurricanes or the fires. And it's like, how do I get those folks what they need to do that? They're going to beat the government, you know six days and that first week is so critical um, and we, we've seen this play out time and again in Europe I don't know if you're aware of the Moria fire uh, mm-hmm. for example mm-hmm. right so there's some more we'll talk about about that but really
0: for I our think- listeners can you uh, just tell uh, tell them what that was what that event was
1: yeah so the Moria camp on Lesbos is Europe's largest refugee camp, or I should say it was. Um, it has literally been described by the professionals, by MSF, by, by doctors, you know, um, who go there and work there as hell on earth. Um, it is, the infrastructure there is abominable, and everyone, in my opinion, who is responsible for that camp um, existing should be tried for human rights violations. Um, So that's kind of the backdrop. There were at most 20,000 people there earlier this year. The camp was built in a former prison site meant to hold 2,500 people. Um, A third of these folks are children, right? And uh, so you can imagine with such a high... Um, over capacity. Just thinking about basic infrastructure. I'm not talking about electricity to power a fan or something. I'm talking about like, where can you safely go take a shower? Where can you get food? How many hours do you have to line up for food? You know, there's no Uber Eats there. Um, The the sewage, what happens to sewage in a place that was built for 2,500 people and there's 20,000 people there? Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially with COVID, and this is true across all of the camps, the Greek government's policy when there was the potential for an outbreak in the camps was to lock everything down and try to isolate anyone who was affected, which, um, if it works, it works. It's not the worst idea if paired with other forms of support, but essentially what they were doing was saying, Hey, if COVID hit the camp let's lock everyone inside and hope for the best. And you know what? We were actually responding um, a week before the Moria fire to COVID hitting the Moria camp. This is everyone's nightmare. We had a hundred thousand masks um, donated by one of the new groups we we're working with in Germany, Europe Cares. Um, these were like really good FFP2 and 95 style masks. hundred thousand of them were on the way to the camp. Um, of course, The government was locking it down and trapping 20,000 people in. And in this case, they were not able to contain the spread. So the situation that we were looking at was what, 10, 20% of people dying because of COVID locked in there with no support, with no asylum, uh, with no NGO access, with no accountability. That was what we were dealing with at the time. And um, I don't want to go too much because it's easy for everyone to kind of comment on why this happens, but it appears that um, a number of uh, kids, unaccompanied minors who are locked up, uh, torch the camp as an act of protest to force Europe's hand to deal with this, saying that it is unacceptable for you to sit by and watch us die, and so we will do something that will make you take action. Um and no one died like this was something that was very much you know appears at least from my perspective to be planned out to be coordinated the camp everything burned to the ground 85% of the structures there were just destroyed um and that began the other half so okay people weren't locked in left to die to COVID now there was 20,000 people uh maybe like closer to 12 and a half at the time there um that were immediately overnight made houseless um that first week of course it was the grassroots aid orgs um that were the first to respond we were looking at the logistics side whatever people had on the islands was like what they could use day one take about three to four days we coordinated a number um of uh, transfers of aid within Greece, getting stuff from other islands and from the mainland to groups that were already operating on Lesbos. And then it was, you know, another week or two before our larger international shipments made it there. So that's like really interesting supply chain geekery. Um, but the challenges were incredibly sad. Um, you know, looking at something holistically, like when you have such a large population of people, you have such an inadequate government response. And in the States, you've seen this with Katrina. You've seen this with so many things. I'm like a 29 year old just doing this shit because I I care about it. And there were 750 uh, babies living on the side of a highway for a week. You can't distribute formula um, you can't, if you can't make sure that bottles are clean, and that, you know, the formula actually is mixed at the right ratio, you will kill those kids. Um, and, and so that's what we were looking at is like, how do we go find some corporation that cares enough to get, you know, single use formula out there, everyone pick up the phone and start calling until it's found, you know, um, and we did, there's a German group that figured it out. And, you know, they're able to ship it on their own, which is great. But I think it's it's damning. It's damning that you have so many caring people and so many young people that want a better future and that will literally work themselves to death for that. And the fact that we have to do this, um, you know, like I look forward to going to hell because I'm gonna have some words with some folks that are down there. <laughs> yeah. Um I don't really know why. Oh, the Moria fire. Yeah. So really tragic situation, and again, the government's response was to spend that week not caring for the people who were living on a highway, not doing anything about the fascists who were attacking aid workers and asylum seekers and using that chaos to sow disruption, but building a new temporary Moria, um, which now houses about 10,000 people on a old army shooting range. (laughs) which is located in a place that offers no shelter from the wind or the waves by the sea. And now the question is, is not, you know, um, where these people are living, but how long until it kills them through exposure, um, through the lead that's in the soil, You know, this is the type of stuff that people don't think through these issues. Um, You know, it's, it's very hard and I get it. There's lots of little details. But this is like if you're in the US, think about Fallujah, right? Think about like all of the effects for tons and tons of people that have nothing to do with any bad stuff, but because they're living in these conditions that you have chosen to put them in. Um, will suffer for the rest of their lives, right? And and that's what like Epstein is that this is someone's choice. Some bureaucrat is sitting down and saying, right, the best way to to deal with all of these people is to just put them in an even worse spot. Right. The best way to, you know, from the Brussels perspective, how do we help Greece? Let's go give a bunch of money to like terribly incompetent agencies. You Perfect.
0: Know. It's really hard to. I know you know most of my listeners, if not all of them, are American. Um, it's really hard to sort of really put into words the absolute scale of the tragedy of these types of camps. The fact that when faced with dying from a pandemic locked inside of a fucking prison with 10,000 other people, or being completely fucking homeless, houseless, all of your belongings, everything that you've known for as long as, you, as, long as you've been there, voluntarily torched. It's, it's a rock and a hard place, man. I remember seeing video from that fire and seeing just the scale of it. It was incredible to watch. And it's, it's really hard to like wrap your head around that dire choice. You know, I live, I live in an apartment. I have, you know, I have what I need. Right. I, it's so difficult to be able to really imagine what that must feel like that you either have to watch your family die or you have to potentially watch your family die because now you don't have a place to sleep, you know? Um, but the, the alternative, there's no good choice there and you have to do something, you know? Um, and, uh, I'm glad that there are aid groups that were just ready to go, you know, saw it happening and said, okay, what do we need to do, you know, and um, that more people didn't suffer needlessly as a result of it, you know, Um, I I feel like it
1: really gets to like, the heart of the work that we do is, When you're dealing with such monumental issues um, and issues that won't stop, right, like war won't stop, climate change won't stop, Um, or at least it's something that, you know, even though it's the largest grassroots network going on, like we can't make it stop. Um, And and so it's harm reduction, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's how do we provide the most dignity to the most people and make their lives at least bearable. Um, But at the end of the day, it's harm reduction. So I think I'm excited looking at this. I honestly don't care about one more truck of aid or one more aid group. I want to get to the heart of the matter and say, what does it take to actually solve these problems? You know, how many tents does it take in Calais where the police go through and regularly evict hundreds of people every single week and slash the tents that are sent over? And this is like the UK and France support this. And the people of the UK are saying, fuck no, and send more tents, you know, to house these folks. It's like, great, tents are now a consumable item like food because of the choices of these governments. How many tents does it take to make sure that every time these folks are evicted, they get a new tent? And then how do we pressure the corporations to give us that many tents? Because anything other than that is, it's not a solution. At best, it's just harm reduction. Um, And even that is like the best level of harm reduction. That is not a solution by itself. So it's like, Being realistic, I think, about what you can do and what your role in this is um, uh, is is tough, but necessary, because then you can say, right, this is a good starting point. And then what does it take to do more? And then what does it take to do more until this problem is actually solved? Right. Um, Yeah. You talked about scale, though, and certainly for me or you, the scale of these problems is massive. Um, This year we uh, reached over 200,000 asylum seekers with aid on our trucks. Uh, We sent 2 million euros worth of aid. Like I, I, my mind is blown. I never thought that we would ever like do something this big. And and that is nothing, right? That is so small. Um, Drop in the bucket. Yeah, 20 million um, refugees in the world, there's 80 million displaced people. By 2050, if if we aren't able to mitigate climate change, there will be 250 million to 1 billion climate refugees, right? So when we're looking at scale, a few hundred, a thousand asylum seekers in Greece compared to the population of Europe is nothing. And it would take nothing for politicians to actually put them in an apartment, right? It would actually have been a great response to COVID to say, hey, economy's down. But why don't we do some stimulus to build new housing, to put these people in proper housing instead of locking them in the camps? And, uh, and And that would have been a great solution that would have helped everybody, right? Uh, um,
0: yeah, but oh, no, know. no, no, no. See, that's, that's not how that works. That's not how governments operate because then they would have to spend money on it
1: god you might have to tax jeff bezos a little bit god
0: fuck god forbid that we have a shred of human decency in the face of one of the most insane horrific events to happen in the last fuck 50 years you know it's fine it's fine
1: Hey, isn't it fun now that it only gets worse from here like 2020 <laughs> is the best year of the next 30 years <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, oh, it's going to be great. 2021 is going to be fucking awesome. Well, oh, so my fun.
1: gosh. We just had the news. So we've had these incredibly challenging trucks, um, the last aid trucks out of the UK before Brexit. We got, you know, a couple months worth of food to distribute in Northern France there. We got, um, you know, 10,000 blankets, um, a whole bunch of like collected clothing, some tents and between brexit and christmas and everything um even though it's just two trucks on a regular route that we've done all year oh my gosh there's not a single available truck we finally just like you know i basically put up one of my own paychecks for my nights and weekends work to like get that thing booked and out the door and talking about COVID and everything (laughs) super COVID has just emerged in the UK. It spreads 77% faster. And I'm like, please, if it locks my trucks out of France right now. like That's
0: that's Uh, a nightmare scenario. I was going to ask, how has Brexit disrupted the ability for you to do this work? Because I know that having a, a bit of a porous border from the UK into Europe has probably been a godsend for this type of work and now that you know you're seeing images of shipping lines just choked up at the border what is what's the plan what are we going to do you know
1: right on um yeah brexit is a big problem and COVID in general has caused massive supply chain disruptions um and so specifically Brexit didn't kick, which was good for most of the year, but the effects of like that commercially will kick in in January, nope. a lot of stress and uncertainty. Um, I think at our scale, though, and with some of the, you know, obviously we still work with corporations to ship the stuff and, and all of that. And there's actually some really good folks on that side. Um, uh, we'll talk about the... Uh, NGO, anti-capitalist, corporate, government, kind of how all of that fits together in a way that I can still sleep at night later. Um, But basically stuff is still going to get in and out of the UK because it has to. They're an island nation, that has a significantly reduced manufacturing capability, um, you know, just like most Western countries. Um, but you know, especially them, they need to import food. Uh, there's massive food shortages in the UK right now because of Brexit to the point that we're actually like looking at how do we import food next year as like a tiny NGO. (laughs) Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that Um, Our strategy is twofold, right? Um, Because the UK, despite being a horrific government, um, the people there really care. There's been a massive grassroots movement to support folks in northern France and in Greece, especially. Um, And that is a significant amount of aid that needs to continue to get out. So our strategy is um, to deal with this. Make everything look as commercial as possible. We're coming out with sorting and packing standards. We're setting up pubs. It's no longer possible and it hasn't been since COVID um, to do the van run. Just chuck it all in the van and your mate drives down to northern France and you unload there. So we've already um, started to get people, you know, over the past six months on board with our way of doing things, which is a bit larger scale than that, a little bit less personal, but you know, still definitely making sure that the folks collecting stuff see the impact and the groups on the grounds, you know, are, are talking to them directly. We're just like the silent middlemen. Um, but if we can slip this in with commercial trafficking, if it's not 400 trash bags full of stuff in the back of a lorry, but it's actually boxes of a standard size in pallets and we can do some smart things to kind of you don't have to count out every t-shirt we can estimate based on you know a uh an average per square meter or something i think that'll help get through the additional customs check on the french side right so there's there's customs how do you get your stuff actually into the um, the tariffs and cost side of this the actual trucking expenses will almost certainly be higher um but fortunately we've been able to cut um, across the board off of shipping costs. So that'll hopefully balance out a little bit at least. Um, And uh, yeah, in terms of tariffs, we're looking at how do we get the stuff that we send classified as humanitarian aid so it can be imported to the EU without any tariffs. Um, But certainly it'll be more difficult. There'll be more stuff on the sending side to do. It'll be more expensive um, and it'll take longer. So need to make sure that stuff is still going out. It's so important and there's so much capacity there. Until we actually hit January, we don't know how long it'll take to figure out how to get that running again. And that's where some of the new German groups like Europe Cares or where Parkinson come into play. Um, These are both groups that started up when COVID hit. So this is a lot of new capacity to the aid movement. And we've already got Europe Cares. Um, We helped them with their first shipment to Calais. Uh, we, We kind of started slowing down in December, but I've heard that they worked out another one on their own to Calais. And so that's really good to see. Um, you know, this is not just a country-to-country response, but I think we've really helped grow it into a truly international response, where we're able to look at the sum of what's available, the sum of this capacity, and then the sum of what's needed, and try to hook people up in efficient ways, where they can fill the gaps as they come up and die down. And that's like the whole thing with grassroots, right? One group starts up, one group gets tired and needs a break. Some country makes a boneheaded decision to leave the EU. Another countries <laughs> the heart of the Germany will never leave so
0: let's right look. you've already found you've sort of you saw the fucking crash out Brexit on the horizon <laughs> six months ago and you were like how the fuck do we make sure that this doesn't happen to the point where we are just completely unable to operate and you've been finding solutions already see that's
1: yeah it, it takes a long time too because it's grassroots so like you know, I got to go tell Grandpa Joe why he has to put in the extra effort to sort his shit out. You know, the right way, which mm. the groups in the field love anyways, because they're tired of getting trash bags full of stuff that they can't stack up neatly in their warehouse. So it's right. like, you know, kind of can we one can we take these upcoming challenges and just make them not a problem, or make them you know here's the straightforward solution, follow the simple steps, right? Because it's all volunteer work. No one's getting paid for this. You know, you want to feel good about your effort. You don't want to have to like go through this impossible journey to, to get a t-shirt out. Right. And so we can just make it easy. Um, yeah, I like that. That's like one of the, you know, we're talking about harm reduction how we can't actually solve the big problems, but we're hoping that we can at least take away enough small problems. Um, to to build momentum where collectively we can start chipping away at those larger issues.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, making the process as efficient and seemingly simple, right? Maybe not, maybe simple is not the right word. It's a complex process. Maybe it's, it's straightforward. straightforward. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So
1: we want to encapsulate that complexity. And that's really looking at, you know, say, how do grassroots interact with corporations? We have a very solid look, actually, at our supply chain. And, you know, we can tell exactly where we lean on capitalism, where we have to interact with capitalism, and then where we can tell, you know, the Jeff Bezos of the world to go fuck themselves, right? Right. Um, And I don't necessarily think that, like, every company is the worst thing in the world. Um, You know, there's certain, like, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. I love the shipping companies that we work with and they care a lot and they go to that for us time and time again. Yeah, okay, still a corporation, but I'd much rather be working with them than, you know, putting uh, Amazon lists, you know, that people can order aid from or something like that.
0: Right, right. about making those types of, I mean, those are hard choices to make. You have to, I would assume that, you know, as you learn, you know, start to work with corporations, do you do research into how they operate before you enter into partnerships with them? Or is it just kind of just take help wherever people offer it? I mean,
1: yeah, definitely. Uh, We definitely like to look at um, you know, what, what our suppliers or what our shipping partners are doing. Um, we definitely have ethical standards and, and this is true of every aid group. You know, I think there's stories of like ExxonMobil offering an unlimited budget for gas to groups that was turned down because no one wants to be listed on ExxonMobil site. And we don't want to, you know, be consuming something that's ultimately going to lead to more asylum seekers as climate change continues to on the planet. Um, On that note, we also have very high standards. So like a good example, yes, um, I'll actually name them. I I really like them and respect their .org team, Flexport. Flexport is a global freight forwarder. Um, They're the people that have allowed us to scale to the point where like I've had, you know, gone from zero trucks of aid to like seven trucks of aid booked and delivered in about a week, which is pretty unheard of. Um, So they're not the only shipping partner we use, um, but I respect the hell out of their .org team um, who always, you know, works with the truckers to get us the cheapest rates, um, sometimes getting it totally at cost. And they have, uh, this is why we, you know, started, working with them. They have lots of great additional programs. So they do carbon offsets and we are saving so much money for eight groups. We just build in the carbon offset and pay that for every single truck. Um, so our mainline shipping is 100% carbon neutral already. We're going to start working in the first mile and the last mile there. Um, and we'll have a 100% end-to-end grassroots supply chain that's carbon neutral next year uh, building towards that. so That's
0: really exciting. Yeah, it's really that's really cool. I
1: mean, like, if I can do that as a 29 year old, like, you know, nonprofit entrepreneur type dude out here in Serbia, I'm like literally just a, a guy with a cell phone, is like the funny thing. I have no power. Uh, my job isn't really logistics or tech, it's mostly sales. Like, here's the plan. I got to keep everyone comfortable enough with it to make it happen. And if I can build an end to end carbon neutral supply chain, there's no excuse for any corporation on the planet to to not be doing that, right? Um, it's like, cool. Right. So now I become the example that the climate activists can go to their legislatures and be like, "This is bullshit. Stop killing us." Right, right.
0: right. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <clears throat>
1: yeah, you know, that's cool. cool.
0: Paris Let's Climate Accords. Hard. What? What? It's like Paris Climate Accords? What? (laughs) What have we been doing for the last, fuck, five years? Nothing? Nothing. Shit just gets worse. But cool. Um, I'm trying to figure out a way to segue into just a larger conversation about the role that... I'm bad at segues. The role that um, anti capitalism and sort of, uh, I don't want to call it like a leftist ethics, but anti capitalist ethics plays into these types of mutual aid networks and what it means to work with, you know, as an anti capitalist, as I know you are, um, uh, what it means to work with these sort of both with corporations and with the sort of nonprofits that kind of feel a little weird. And, you know, how do you square all that? either you can speak to the organization or just your own personal politics about um, what that looks like for you. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, as you mentioned earlier, how, how it helps you get to sleep at night.
1: (laughs) Yeah. um, Right on. So I think that I've accepted that we live in a very messy world and a very messy time right now. And that I'm not going to let my own politics or like kind of purity politics um, get in the way of doing good things, right? So like I can go help 200,000 people or I can like, you know, live a totally like politically pure life and not buy anything from a corporation, but I can't do both at the same time, right? And so then it's like, great. This is messy. Let's figure out how to help those people. And then let's continuously improve from there. Um, And so looking at that, um, I'm very interested, like I said, in carbon neutral supply chains. I'm really interested in ethical manufacturing. some fun stories there we can dive into maybe, but let me do the, the overview. So ethical manufacturing, which which could be capitalist in some ways, but it's where the workers get, you know, paid a fair deal and the owners don't profit. They roll the profits into humanitarian aid. There's a number, like a, a great soap factory in Glasgow. We've shipped hundreds and hundreds of thousands of bars of soap um, to Greece because they're running under this model. So like Sure, still a corporation, much, much better than most of them that are out there, right? Um, I think also that like local manufacturing and small or medium scale manufacturing um, that connects the makers directly to the consumers with the middlemen like getting out of the way is, is very interesting as well. It looks like capitalism, and in some ways it is, um, but it's certainly better than the massive corporation capitalism. And I think that we can move, like, what I'm really interested in is not confronting capitalism directly because we don't have the resources or the time for that. And that would probably require a revolution, which I hear a lot of people in the States talking about, which is horrific to me. Um, I don't think people really know what revolution means um, until you've gone and sat in a refugee camp with people that have been through that, right? That means a lot of death and destruction. And so to me, that's off the table. I'm not interested in that. What I am interested in is building up community support so that communities are strong enough that they can tell Bezos to fuck off, right? That they just don't need to participate in this capitalist economy they're good. And then I think that's how we, we do it. Right. It's like, can we just make it irrelevant? Can we make the capitalist, you know, not the guy on the newspapers like, you know, being celebrated, but like that outcast who's like, why are you hurting people? Right. Um, and can we use the structures of capitalism to do that? Can we take things that, you know, it's kind of like a submarine. Can we sneak in there? Can we get the funding? Can we get the resources? And then turns out at the end of the day, we've built a a billion dollar mutual aid economy instead of a billion dollar Silicon Valley startup, right? Right. Uh, Yeah. So that's kind of like realizing that it's messy and trying to just make things work in that mess, trying to continuously improve on top of it and create knowledge and create pathways for people to, um, for for it to be easier for them to help each other in an anti-capitalist way than to use capitalism to solve their problems.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, Just in the last couple of months witnessing, you know, some of the violence that has happened in this country uh, firsthand in Minneapolis, in Omaha, um, it sucks. It's not fun. it's it's uh at its core it is um emotionally damaged uh, damaging i will be forever changed by the things that i witnessed and experienced uh in minneapolis even as you know and this is this is state actors reacting to a joyous militant uprising right um and just that in the grand scale of things may seem i don't want to you know be reductive here it may seem kind of minor right in the grand scale of what a conflict like that would look like right um but it it traumatized communities um and it traumatized activists who were subjected to such violence for um just trying to vent rage and try and find something else to do you know um yeah. instead of the same bullshit where communities are preyed upon by the police all the time right yeah. um i spoke with that, an activist in lagos who witnessed um who's part of uh, the group that witnessed the Lakey uh, Tollgate massacre, right? Security forces opening fire on, on protesters. It's like
1: the SARS or something mm -hmm. like that. right?
0: Yep. Um, And he is forever changed by that. Right. And I think a lot of activists in the United States, and maybe this is going to be the thing that cancels me. Right. Um, They have this hard on for revolution um, and are perfectly willing to sit on a podcast or in their living rooms and talk about the trauma that will be associated with it as some sort of necessary evil. They almost look
1: forwards to it. It's like, I I want to have my battle scars to show off how cool I am. And it's like, that's great, bro. Like, you're some white dude that can kind of pick and choose what to get into. But like, you know, the, the people of color that I know that have lived through this shit, you know, like you're not going to be in the refugee camp at the end of the day because your country got destroyed. Right. Right.
0: Right. And it's like, you know, when you think about, especially, you know, this constant sort of posturing about a second civil war and what that's going to look like and wanting to do you know, these pitch street battles and, and fucking, you know, neighborhood by neighborhood, strongholds by these, asshole right wingers whatever it is whatever the, the 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 wet dream is for that um none of that takes into account the fact that my neighbor's might die my mom might not be able to get her medication i might not be able to get my medication shit shuts down right um we've already seen just the unending sort of roll of 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 the names of the dead from from the pandemic over 300,000 people are dead you know Um, and we've seen what it has done to our economy just because our government is not reacting fast enough. What the fuck do you think is going to happen if this giant civil war revolution, whatever the fuck, erupts in 15 different places in this country at the same time? People are going to die of exposure. They're going to be very much not okay, right? And then it's going to be us walking to the border instead of, you know us yep. trying to accept refugees right and we have no guarantee that they're going to help us if that yeah, is the that's, case that's
1: the thing is like great you're telling everyone to go buy a gun which you know like totally support that. I think that, that there's a difference between community self-defense, which is a lot of what we've seen with the uprising this year, is communities telling, you know, the largest gang in the U.S. to like stay out, you're not welcome here, mm-hmm. and actually a, a civil war, right? Because the sort of infrastructure and planning, just from a logistical point of view that you need for a, a open front, sustained conflict is enormous. And quite frankly, the left in the U.S., doesn't have the guns, but that's the least of the problems. They don't control the supply chains. They don't control the production of basic necessities for many people, like food, like medicine, like water access. Um, And that's also, I think, looking at the larger global picture, terribly irresponsible of Americans, especially white Americans, who are some of the richest people on earth, you know, it's like, I would much rather you take care of your communities, you start to build up that community infrastructure, right? Help people invest your money into community gardens, right? Make sure that your neighbors, you know, if they can't access food, you're driving around and getting them food or shelter or whatever. There's so much of that work that needs to be done to even like set the stage for some sort of revolution and people aren't even talking about it. Um And that doesn't even get into the responsibility that we in the US have to the Afghanis, the Iraqis, the Syrians, the Libyans that are living in these camps in Europe, or even worse places like Turkey, or God forbid, Libya right now, right? And so it's like, are we going to... Invest our limited time and resources on something that will grow and give us more of that and help us, you know, build the future? Or are we gonna like masturbate to violence, you know, because we think it's cool? Right.
0: right. Like, I will say this though uh, the cool thing about mutual aid, right, that I witnessed in, let me say this it is so easy to just start working on it, right? When I was in Minneapolis and a neighborhood groceries had burnt down in this neighborhood around the third precinct, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, available food, right? We're in a pandemic. Folks were worried that they were not gonna be able to get their groceries. That was a a major concern, right? Um, The day after I showed up, this was the day after I think the third precinct burnt down and the riot, the National Guard had moved in. And so rioting sort of kind of was not at a fever pitch anymore. Neighborhoods immediately started putting together mutual aid drop off points where it would be like, Do you have extra food? Drop it on the sidewalk. Do you need food? We've put it in a bag for you. Right. And it, it's hilarious that some of the items may or may not have been looted from the target the day before. You know what I mean? Like these things just showed up and folks had the ability to pick up a bag or two bags, drop it off at their neighbors. Folks were checking in with each other. There was this very, very much the sense of this community is going to take care of itself. We are feeling, you know, I'm staring at giant National Guard Humvees that are blocking the street and forming a barricade. And I just turn and like half a block down, someone is cooking hot dogs and making sure that folks have enough toilet paper for the week, you know? And it was a very weird moment for me to watch this happen, but it was also something that was very cool they had, you know, neighbors were cleaning up uh, the the shards of glass. They were making sure that folks were not getting, um, you know, uh, running into major issues in in homes. You know, folks were making sure that if you had a home that was adjacent to a burning building, that that home was fine. Like the community just stepped up and started doing stuff, right? Um,
1: you don't need permission. You can exactly. Go- you can you can just go do it, and and I think that that's really what the uprising. Uh, You know, what I hope woke up from it is not this, like, desire for more violence or revolution, but the ability to say, like, no, we will take care of our communities. People that want to start violence are not welcome here. And like, yes, we will take care of our communities. If you need shelter, if you need food, if you need medicine, you can have that. And sometimes in order to provide that food, you have to do things in a gray zone. Like, Guess what? If a corporation's hoarding food, go loot the motherfucker, right? Um, I definitely support radical squats in Exarchia, in this anarchist neighborhood in Greece. I legally do not ship to them, I ship to NGOs. In Greece, I definitely know that some of that stuff somewhere in the supply chain ends up supporting, you know, what is essentially an autonomous zone, right? right. And that's what I love about my job is like I'm totally above board. We've fucking won awards <laughs> for UN, and in the meantime, I'm supporting radical anarchist neighborhoods, and it's it's okay to do both, right? Right,
0: <laughs> right. And you know, it's um, it's one of those things where this shit is possible. It's being done. Right. And it's it's not something like you said, you don't have to ask permission for this. Right. Mad Relief, the group that you want to talk to, the Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, um, have been operating for a couple of years um, and they are just the tip of the iceberg in the way that communities respond to crisis. Right. Um, And just in my own town, the main focus of many activist groups has been the sort of prefigurative mutual aid networks that need that were in place well enough before. Covid hit that they could drop off groceries at people's houses, right? Yep. So these yep. things, it's not something that is like part of a national political conversation, but it happens in these communities. And you're you're on the right track here. That the next step is how do we connect them, right? That's, how do we connect, we do. right? Yeah. Exactly.
1: Are doing this already, they they're already out there. It's like how do you find the folks that have been dealing with hurricane response year, just kind of mildly minding their own business. Hurricane comes in, they have the tools, they have the equipment, they have the expertise, they get it there, right? And then how do we get them the infrastructure and support they need to kind of keep that up all year round, not just during hurricane season? And then how do we connect them to Minneapolis when stuff pops out there, to California when, you know, the aid is needed there, you know, the, the whole Gulf Coast has all these hurricane folks, and I, I don't know enough, it's not quite my field, but you know it's like hey wherever the next hurricane hits it's like the other states are shipping their aid over there and then they recover and another hurricane hits somewhere else and it's going the other way right so like when whether it's a, a political disaster whether it's you know like the government uh totally not doing their job in places like flint or something can we take all of the existing infrastructure and connect it and actually solve that problem and then I think if we can do that that's the point that capitalism's irrelevant right that's the point where the farmers the the community grow co-ops the looters of target can all come together and say we don't actually need you we don't we don't need a better FEMA we don't need FEMA period right right like wouldn't that be a wonderful world to live in
0: I mean it's definitely possible and I would You know, it may end up being that we are forced into a position where that is absolutely necessary much sooner than we think, I think, you know, the unending role of uh, disasters, whether it be weather, whether it be uh, political wildfires, um, just a total breakdown of infrastructure in a city, the Frequency by which that happens, I mean, this hurricane season this year is the largest hurricane season the world has seen since they started recording fucking hurricanes, right? They ran out of letters to name the hurricanes. (laughs) We had so many hurricanes this year, right? Uh, The tornado season has now extended well beyond it's supposed to, right? Uh, yeah. Iowa experienced one of the worst natural disasters it's seen in in, in 50 years this year, yeah. right? Um, where uh, f- like 45% of its crop export as it was growing was destroyed by a storm. So yeah. like completely disrupted life. I mean, folks didn't have power for fucking six weeks. You know, yeah. um, these things yeah, that's, that's keep right. happening, yeah.
1: right? Starting to look like in the U.S., in a really developed nation, and, you know, not even, like, uh, a low-income neighborhood, just, like, in general, this type of stuff that Americans are experiencing is starting to look like living on the side of a highway for a week that refugees are experiencing, and I think that really shows that if we let anybody in our world, like, exist in that condition, we run the risk of being right there with them. And so like the best way that I can protect myself is to ensure that no one is houseless, that everyone has food, that everyone gets their insulin and you don't have to do a GoFundMe for it. Because then if I am at risk of being in that position, there are people that have my back and will make sure that I'm not. Right. Right.
0: Right. It's definitely, you know, and it's going to become more important because the government is not going to be able to respond quick enough to this shit it never is never yeah. is in fact, never- six yeah. days for fucking fema to send water to new orleans after fucking katrina is just a goddamn travesty and that was in 2005 right yeah. you know yeah. these these things are prevalent and important and it and it's really cool to be able to talk to you about this specifically um we are getting into like two hours of this conversation. Um, I could go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, <laughs> no, me too. too. We're, we're um,
1: ready to do a, a re-up in six months or something.
0: Yeah, for the sake of uh, for the sake of our listeners, because I could talk about this. I could fucking have you on a five hour live stream, and we could just yeah. <laughs> let's <laughs> well, you get to the Twitch. Let's shutout, do it. it. Let's, let's fucking do talk. it. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, maybe you know, maybe if I end up in serbia next year we can just do a live fingers
1: crossed dude i'm super excited you just let me know what you're thinking as graduation approaches here and like yeah you a stipend, we'll get you housing set you up for six months or a year or whatever and
0: yeah uh,
1: with covid fingers crossed for the vaccine you know we can take some trips and and you can actually go meet some of the people that we're working with here
0: that would be really cool yeah um hell yeah okay so for the sake of this conversation, putting this little period on it, um, this has been an incredible conversation. I always, always enjoy talking to you, and it pisses me off that we don't talk enough. Uh,
1: yeah, uh, we need,
0: should talk more often. I need, um, to, I need more you, time.
1: I've worked like literally nonstop, like twelve to sixteen hour days for too. like three months. Yeah, it's yeah. A, that's one of the things. I just want to make this point: if you're listening to this podcast you know, not everyone has to do what I do. You don't have to be male, like going to the, the heart of the conflict to report on it. There is so much room to just do little things in your life. And the people that are out there, I'm not even on the front lines, right? I'm a second line kind of support guy. We are exhausted. We are broke as fuck. And so, you know, like, please ship in that five to the Patreon, you know, buy us a sandwich or something, right? Donate some tents, whatever small way you can contribute, that pays off. Um, For us, it, it very literally, for every dollar we get and spend on admin expenses, we ship like $300 of aid to the field. You know, it it doesn't take much to have a huge impact, but every single person I know from healthcare workers, from refugee aid workers, from natural disaster responders, whether it's your profession or you're on the grassroots side, this has been a hell of a year. So like, I'm not saying go out and be a superhero, but it, it takes all of us just chipping away at it a little bit at a time together. Um, and that also is what keeps me going is how I've seen people step up regardless of your position in life time and time again. So like that's what makes me have hope for the future is seeing the slow, steady progress despite all of these setbacks. Um,
0: H- hell yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, our, okay. So you mentioned Patreon. Um, where can folks support you on Patreon? Just drop the link. Um, I know you uh, have yeah. a Twitter, so uh, any accounts that you want us uh, to share with our listeners, go ahead and list them out if you'd like.
1: Oh okay, Yeah, that's so nice. Um, oh, like, should I send you the links or should no, I? No, no,
0: go ahead and just say it right, uh, right here in the the podcast uh, recording, and then I will also put them in the show notes as well.
1: Okay. So, where so- can folks support you? Right on. Um, If you're in Europe, go to distributeaid.org and get in touch with us if you want to join the Refugee Aid movement or if you're already doing some of that work. Um, If you're anywhere in the world, like I said, a dollar in admin expenses, which is super efficient, um, 300 bucks of aid to the field. Hit us up on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash Um, And if you want to check out some of the cool stuff we've done, I know our social team has been working hard on our Instagram, which I believe, um, oh gosh, I'm not an Instagram person. Let me look that up. Um, Yeah, distribute aid on Instagram and on Twitter. You can connect with me at borderless dev or at distribute aid for us on Twitter. Always happy to dive into all the nerdy logistics stuff that we do, mutual aid, anti capitalism, whatever you want to chit chat about.
0: <laughs> Hell yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Taylor, for stopping in and having a fantastic conversation. Once I get the Twitch stream set up, we're going to we're going to talk again for sure. And,
1: yeah. And no, uh, um,
0: really really dig into, you know, cuz there's so much to talk about here. So
1: literally I I feel like like god, I don't know. I feel like I could study what I've done from an academic perspective and spend like a decade on it and and still be uncovering little nuances and I don't have the time to do that cuz I'm doing it.
0: Yeah, so. right. <laughs> right on. Well, thank you so much um Uh, Until next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Protean Pirate Radio. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to us tonight. If you love what you're hearing and would like to support us as we navigate the uncharted waters of our dystopian present, please consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash protean pod. Until next time.